Well, good evening, everybody. Or evening, that is. I should really practice my enunciation before I just willy-nilly launch a call-in room. That being said, once again, good evening. Thank you for taking out a bit of your precious time to join us today, or me, rather, for another exhilarating call-in session. These are the hottest... The hottest scene in town. And... I uh, I wanted to just regale you with the hotness of the moment and inviting you to join me on call, and as always. Um, tonight, it's sort of an unusual locale for me. I'm uh, doing this from a uh, rest stop on the Garden State Parkway. So if anybody out there in Collin land happens to be traveling on the Garden State Parkway, stop at your nearest rest stop. <laughs> you might... Uh, you might encounter me, and then we can uh, record what unfolds live here on the app. That would be amusing. Hopefully, you're not armed. Hopefully, you're not harboring some kind of violent grudge against me. But other than that, I'd we'll be happy to see you. Um, interestingly, as much as I might gripe on occasion about uh, Phil Murphy, the current governor... Uh, I do have to note that on both the Garden State Parkway and the New Jersey Turnpike, the rest stops have been uh, pretty uh, uniformly refurbished lately. So it's actually much more pleasant than it once had been. Not that I uh, make a point to spend a whole lot of time in rest stops. But, you know, for the periods where, you know, you're uh, weary from the road and you have to make a stop to freshen up, maybe get something unhealthy to eat unload your bladder, etc. You know, having a decent atmospherics is somewhat pleasing. And, uh, of course, Phil Murphy makes sure to have his uh, photo, his official gubernatorial portrait displayed prominently in the rest stop, just so everyone knows that he is responsible for the refurbishments. Now, he's not alone in having done that. Chris Christie did the same. But uh, it does seem to me that the pace of refurbishing at rest stops has accelerated at least in the past couple of years though I have to double check that maybe I'm giving Murphy credit that he's not due um, anyway that's enough uh, chit chat and small talk I, uh, I did publish a sub stack today that maybe some of you have read maybe some of you haven't if you haven't I mean who can really blame you who has time to read anymore these days anyway there's so much on Netflix just kidding not um so the, the, the premise of the Substack was something that had occurred to me for a while now and sort of stuck with me, and I wanted to figure out a way to formulate it into a uh, you know compelling thesis. And it had to do with the, the dichotomy of the, the dichotomy and the trends around political polarization recently, or at least in, in partisan behavior. So on the one hand, you had a pretty quintessential example of partisan political behavior in the past couple of weeks, which is that after months of tedious legislative maneuvering, uh, Democrats in Congress finally got their act together and they did pass this uh, $430 billion package, which is essentially a, this scaled-down version of the original Build Back Better plan. And I'm not even bringing this up to get into any of the specifics of the, specifics of the plan. I fa- frankly find them a bit boring, which is maybe uh, 
evidence of my own superficiality, but whatever. Um, the point is that Democrats got this bill passed, and if you look at the voting totals in both the House and the Senate, it was a pure example of forever going to get one of just, you know, 100% partisan behavior. So even in the Senate, where you'll oftentimes have a couple of stragglers or outliers in either party's caucus who vote with the other party, such as, you know, Lisa Murkowski or now Mitt Romney on occasion or uh, Susan Collins, who will, you know, be more aligned with the Democrats on some issues. Uh, even they voted en masse against it, and uh, Democrats voted en masse for it, including outlier senators like uh, Joe Manchin and Chris, Christian Sinema, who did extract certain concessions from leadership in order to secure their votes for passage. But nonetheless, when the final vote came down, they, they did vote in favor of the bill. So it was a, the, the, the partisan affiliation of a senator for this bill was 100% predictive of whether they were going to vote for the bill. If they were a Republican, they were going to vote against it. If they, they were a Democrat, they were going to vote for it. And uh, it was almost identical in the House. So as an observer, as uh, somebody who follows the trends in U.S. politics, you might be tempted to look at this development and conclude that partisanship is more of an intractable uh, variable in U.S. politics than it's ever been, or at least it's ramped up in the intensity with which that variable kind of plays a decisive role in determining political outcomes. Um, yeah, you have a massive, you have a big spending bill that one party universally, universally hates and one party universally loves. It's an oversimplification, but you get the idea. The, this particular package seemed like it's, again, the quintessence of just what you would expect for uh, partisan behavior. And yeah, it's true. I grant that this was an instance of very standard fare, run-of-the-mill, totally predictable and even tedious partisan behavior. And it happened to coincide with this particular spending bill. But the point that I wanted to make and the point that had been like sticking in my craw for quite a while is that this seeming polarization around certain you know, domestic policy matters, um, you know, interspersed with a seeming intensification of animosity around culture war issues between the party. And, you know, culture war is a sort of a vague term, but I'm including within that, you know, issues like gender identity, whether, you know, hormones should be given to kids, trans stuff, uh, you know, race, the role of race and education curricula, you, you get the idea. I mean, these culture war issues tend to shift as time goes on, so it's not gay marriage as it would have been 15 years ago, but it's other stuff. So uh, you, you sort of get what I'm, where I'm coming from, and I think you probably could also appreciate that the fervor around culture war issues seems to have supplanted the fervor that, you know, in, for example, the Tea Party era would have swirled around stuff like government spending, at least nominally the Tea Party or, you know, factions or figures associated with the Tea Party claim that they were 
launching into this newly energized mode of political engagement because they were so incensed by the overspending of the Obama administration, or they would even say they were incensed by the failure of the previous Republican administration and the Republican Congress to, you know, hold fast to their conservative values and rating government spending, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, there was a big, at least ostensible movement within, for example, the Republican House caucus led by guys like Paul Ryan or even Eric Cantor, if that name rings a bell, um, to make kind of just hardline fiscal conservatives, fiscal conservatism, the dominant ideological uh, bent of, of the party. And now, really, at least it's so it's or so it seems, there's been a very discernible shift toward culture war really being the be all end all in terms of how. Both parties conceive their roles and how they position themselves in opposition to one another. And, of course, abortion also has taken on renewed prominence recently as well. So you, you, so you have one layer of polarization around culture war stuff and around also, to some degree, domestic spending, although it is sort of interesting that there wasn't a whole lot of Republican consternation around this spending bill. I mean, there were some, but it's not like there was a, there were mass protests around it, or it really caused as much of a frenzy as, for example, like Obamacare did, or even the stimulus package did in 2009. I mean, I would argue this is sort of tangential to the point, but I would probably argue that that's kind of indicative of again Republicans transitioning away from fiscal or so, uh, economic conservatism as their like lodestar of how they kind of organize themselves as a party, right? And it's a, sort of a separate issue. The issue being that notwithstanding these trends around polarization in other areas, on um, issues of foreign policy, and, even, and foreign policy is kind of almost a overly narrow way of putting it, because it's not just a question of simple foreign policy. It's a question, a question of like whether the human race is existentially viable. <laughs> Um, on some of the most profound questions of state, meaning as relates to the role of the U.S. as global hegemon, meaning you know, militarily and economically, um, as uh, relates to you know war and peace, to put it slightly melodramatically, although it used to be the case that you would say war and peace was just obviously the most important issue that anyone in public life could involve themselves in. Um, or would have responsibility to make decisions in relation to. Uh, on those questions now, I, I would argue that the party's differences are rapidly shrinking, maybe more so than at least ever, at any point previously in my lifetime, um, such that they're more and more kind of monomaniacally focusing on these culture war issues and on even some of the marginal stuff around domestic spending to obscure how uh, obviously and um, manifestly their, their worldviews have really converged around foreign policy. So what's, what's an example? Well, to me, an, an inarguable example, and I would love to someone, for someone to present a counterargument showing how I'm wrong about this, but a, a seemingly inarguable example was the vote earlier this month on the accession of Sweden and Finland to NATO. 
you may recall that that provision to the NATO treaty was ratified by a vote of 95 to 1. So 95 members of the U.S. Senate voted to approve the accession or the membership of of Sweden and Finland in NATO. Now, why is this an example of the differences between the parties shrinking over time? Well, because at least in the past, namely during earlier rounds of NATO expansion, there was some semblance of a live debate around whether NATO expansion was prudent, whether it would advance the security interests of the U.S. or detract from them. So I went back in the archive, as I want to do, and refreshed my memory, not that I was <laughs> cognizant of this at the time, but refreshed my memory as to the polit- political dynamics at play in 1998 during the first round of significant NATO expansion. So this was when the U.S. Senate had to debate whether to approve the accession of Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic to NATO. And this was a pretty seismic debate at the time. I mean, this was a fundamental departure. This was the first time that NATO would have fundamentally and unalterably departed from what its original sort of remit had been in relation to the Cold War, because the Cold War at that point had been over for at least seven, eight years, uh, insofar as the Soviet Union had dissolved. And so, although, obviously, as we know with the perspective of history, the Senate did approve the accession into NATO of those three countries, 19 senators voted against it. Meaning 19 senators voted no on Poland, the Czech Republic, and Hungary joining NATO. And among those 19 were some of what you could call like the lions of the Senate, meaning some of the most prominent, long-standing members who were widely revered by their colleagues and by the media and, and so on. Uh, and, and the most interesting example is probably uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was a Democratic senator from New York, who um, was kind of trans-ideological in the sense that he was kind of at times associated with a neoconservative domestic policy, not necessarily foreign policy, but on, on domestic policy in the sense that he was, you know, skeptical of welfare in certain respects and could often find himself in alignment with Republicans. Uh, but on this issue, he was basically the leading uh, opponent of this provision to expand NATO. And I went back and watched some of his um, statements at the time on the floor of the Senate and read his commentaries and so, and so on. And he declared his opposition to this round of NATO expansion in, in very stark terms. He basically warned that he was uh, fearful that the U.S. was uh, lurching into a predicament whereby it could unthinkingly get itself into a nuclear exchange with Russia eventually. Now, notably, he didn't really warn that this was going to happen with any immediacy in 1998, right? He was talking about this as a long-term problem. And in the long term, I find it difficult to believe that anybody could make 
an honest argument that he was wrong, that NATO expansion at least contributed, however much you want to argue of a factor it is, but it would be asinine to not, at least not admit that it contributed to the overall deterioration of relations between the U.S. and Russia over time. And that's what Daniel Patrick Moynihan was warning about exactly in 1998, before any of this had even been embarked upon. And, you know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was still revered after he made the, these points. I'm not saying I personally revere him necessarily. I'm just noting that among, among his colleagues, among the sort of political class, he was, he was in high, held in high regard. And it wasn't seen as like a toxic or career-ending move for him to take this stance in opposition to NATO expansion at the time. And, he, and, and Moynihan did so on principled grounds, meaning his opposition was framed not just as like some logistical qualm with how NATO expansion would be implemented, right? It was actually his principled view that this was going to increase the likelihood that down the line there could be some cataclysmic conflict. And interestingly, Moynihan and his, the colleagues that agreed with him engaged on the floor of the Senate in what is a pretty rare occurrence, which is they actually engaged directly in debate with other senators who favored NATO expansion. And the point person for the pro-NATO expansion side, I mean, the person who was like, responsible for essentially whipping the votes and uh, shepherding the measure through the legislative process in the Senate was none other than Joe Biden. And Biden at the time was the uh, ranking Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And if you listen to him, I mean, there are a few issues where you can actually detect the what seems like sincere passion in Biden's voice when he's advocating for some issue. But on this issue, you really can detect it. I mean, I don't know how honest he is or how sincere he is in his vociferous support for NATO expansion over the years. Uh, but at least listening to him, he gives a distinct impression that he actually does have this real uh, striding conviction in, in expanding NATO. Um, and so, amusingly enough, or darkly ironically enough, this is one of the few issues that Biden actually has remained unwaveringly consistent on over the course of his career, which, of course, is stretched comically long, uh, given that it started at least in the Senate in the 70s and uh, continues up into this day. If I'm not mistaken, actually, it started early because he was a member of the new council, uh, city council or whatever, county council, something like that in the 60s. So, you know, he's been out there for a long time and, um, you know, he pretty much shifts according to whatever the consensus view is in in the Democratic uh, Party, more or less. Uh, But on NATO expansion, he's always made pretty evident that it's actually an actual conviction for him. <laughs> so for him not to be president ushering through another round of NATO expansion is uh, kind of fitting. Um, but, you know, for the, the, the opponents of NATO expansion around that time, like Moynihan, also uh, including, you know, Senator Pat Leahy, who's still in office, uh, Senator Ron Wyden, who's still in office, both Democrats, uh, James Inhofe, who's a Republican, uh, Paul Wellstone, who... Um, who was basically the flagship, uh, quote-unquote, progressive in the Senate at the time. John Ashcroft, who was a hardline 
socially conservative Republican, later became attorney general under George W. Bush. All these people were against NATO expansion. They had differing rationales for it at times, but they were all against it. And it wasn't like a death knell for their careers, right? It wasn't like something they had to worry was going to be used against them in this deeply personal terms where they could be accused of, you know, being corrupt in that they're being corruptly paid by Putin or whatever. I mean, you know, the standard attack line. Uh, Whereas today, I mean, look at what the political climate has, has brought about. It's brought about a set of political circumstances where anyone who would who would oppose something like NATO expansion, which you'd think would be open f- for reasonable debate, um, is going to get automatically castigated. Um, there's certainly no, quote, space whatsoever for any Democrat to oppose it seemingly. Whereas it was more of a democratically oriented position in the 90s to oppose NATO expansion. It was pretty somewhat evenly split amongst the parties, but it probably leaned Democrat in terms of who opposed it then. Uh, today, you even have uh, Bernie Sanders, of course, voting in favor of this round of NATO expansion for Sweden and Finland, and not even really bothering to explain his rationale because there's no pressure on him to do so. It's not like he's being, you know, quote, held to account by this drumbeat of left-wing media who are incensed that he would take this vote. He kind of just votes on it and then just doesn't say anything more. And he did the same thing, more or less, when he voted in favor of the $40 billion in Ukraine war funding in May. Just kind of votes for it and then acts like nothing happened, I guess. Whereas, interestingly, if you go back to the late 90s, around this period when that first round of NATO expansion was being debated in 1998, uh, Bernie Sanders was in the House, House of Representatives, so he wasn't going to be able to directly vote on the matter. But... He did, even as a member of the House, choose to put some statements into the record, making very clear his opposition to NATO expansion. Um, He basically said, the Cold War is over. Why are we militarily antagonizing Russia? That's what he said. It's in the congressional record. I pulled it out, and it wasn't even that hard. I quoted it in the Substack piece, okay? So, now, it's one thing to say circumstances have changed over the course of the years. You know, now Russia is this... No, you know, Nazi Germany 2.0, and therefore every reservation we might have had about NATO expansion in decades past is no longer applicable. That would be one thing. You could at least theoretically make that argument. But the thing is, the political climate today is such that nobody even feels obliged to make an argument as to why their views have changed, if their views have changed. It's kind of just one of these issues that becomes an article of faith, or it goes without saying, right, that of course you support this. And uh, even in the case of the lone senator who did oppose the accession of Sweden and Finland to NATO, Josh Hawley, if you actually delve a little bit deeply into his reasoning, it's, he, made, he went out of his way to clarify that he was not opposed on principle to NATO expansion. So he was not opposed on any grounds comparable to why Daniel Patrick Monaghan in 1998 was opposed. Rather, Hawley stated that his opposition, and he, and he did ultimately vote no. So he, in the 95 to 1 vote total, he was the one. But he was explicit in outlining that his rationale for voting no was simply predicated on a concern over resource allocation. So it's not as though he was against, on principle, 
this expansion of NATO into Sweden and Finland because he felt that it was going to, you know, bring the country to the precipice of nuclear war or make, make nuclear annihilation more likely. But that he thought that it was an improper allocation of resources because his contention is that whatever resources are now going to be deployed to Scandinavia by the U.S. on account of their, these countries joining NATO ought to instead be deployed to East Asia to counteract China and even prepare for an eventual war with China, whether over Taiwan or some other issue. So he, he's actually for the expansion and the globalization of American military power. He's not, he doesn't have any problem with that at all. In fact, he favors it. He just thinks that it should be more concentrated in one particular theater, that being China. At least, or at least that's what he claims his rationale is. I'm frankly not so sure that it's a sincerely arrived at rationale, um, not because of just like knee-jerk cynicism about him as a politician, although I think that could also potentially be warranted, but because you know, he voted for prior rounds of NATO expansion. Now, smaller scale ones, like North Macedonia um, in 2019, which is not like some kind of military heavyweight, but he voted for that. And uh, doesn't even seem to have tried to reconcile why he would have voted for that versus why he's now opposing Sweden and Finland. Um, so is it a principled view? Who knows? Whatever the reasons he's, he's take, taking out this position, though it should be said, uh, he was the, literally the only one. And uh, he, he heavily qualified it to the point where he wanted everyone to know that it shouldn't be indicative of him actually having a principled uh, skepticism of the wisdom of expanding NATO. Whereas lots of people in the 90s, including leading lights of the Senate like Moynihan, Paul Wellstone, um, again, uh, you know, Ron Wyden, Pat Leahy, John Ashcroft, J James Inhofe, uh, they did have principled criticisms of the wisdom of expanding NATO. But that's all kind of been evaporated. And so now it's been overtaken by this utter conformity that has enveloped both parties. Such that there, there's no meaningful distinction between them on a central issue like this. And you know, I think that should at least be taken into account when people are you know, bemoaning this uh, intractable polarization between the two parties as, uh, as if uh, you know, partisanship is more rabid now than it's ever been. Well, if that's the case, how do they always manage to unite seamlessly together in favor of measures that, you know, just so happen to, you know, fortify the exertion of U.S. military power and expand U.S. hegemony? You know, it's funny because when during the, the uh, negligible debate that did take place during this NATO uh, ratification vote this month with regard to Sweden and Finland, uh, Lindsey Graham, of course, stood up and chirped that uh, he so wished that his good friend, the late uh, amigo, John McCain, was there to witness what was unfolding because he would have been so very pleased. And now, Lindsey Graham, in this respect, was correct. I mean, he, he's correct to pine for the for John McCain to rise from the dead, because if he were to do so, he probably would look out on the current political landscape and be pleased that the two parties are more united than seemingly ever, or at least than they have been in quite some time, on their unswerving commitment to this expansion of U.S. military hegemony as arrayed against now this new nefarious tandem of China and Russia.
I mean, there used to be some pretty robust debate around whether arraying militarily against China and Russia was like a smart thing to do, or maybe it should be tempered somewhat, or maybe we need to be a little more mindful about how it, things could escalate into unforeseen territory and maybe even lead to nuclear annihilation. But nobody even really raises those points anymore. And that's what's so amazing and disturbing. Like in 1998, you had a figure as formidable as Daniel Patrick Moynihan overtly warning that a policy action such as this could make more likely the prospect of nuclear war. Now, even the the sole opponent of the NATO expansion measure that just passed, Josh Hawley, even he couldn't bring himself to raise that as a concern. To say nothing of the 95 senators who voted in favor of it, and even those who didn't vote in favor of it, who just happened to be absent, they were also all in favor of it. So it's basically more or less 1991 with an asterisk. So, you know, if if you focus on a particular suite of issues, again, namely around culture war, and culture war issues tend to be somewhat fleeting, and uh, if you're still preoccupied with domestic spending, then I guess you can make an argument that partisanship is this hugely consequential variable in American political life. But in order to make that statement, I would argue anyway, you have to willfully ignore how uh, resolutely the two parties are coalescing around a shared commitment to this antagonist foreign policy posture around Russia and China and where, you know, there's no real decipherable difference between the two. So one way I've put it is, like, if you want to vote in the upcoming midterm elections in such a way as to, like, charter, you know, demonstrate your desire to charter a different course on foreign policy, it's extremely unclear which party you should vote for. In fact, your vote makes really no difference at all, as far as I could tell, looking at the respective party platforms and whatever, or uh, it's looking at the voting behavior of the members, you can't vote in the midterms this year to change course at all, really, Um, on the most fundamental issues on the docket. And, uh, you know, this also bears on the more China-specific stuff, especially in relation to the Pelosi-Taiwan visit, you know, where you had Republicans coming out of the woodworks and saying, oh, my God, I never thought I would be so supportive of anything Nancy Pelosi did, but she's totally right to go to Taiwan and, you know, uh, precipitate this totally avoidable, you know, uh, escalation in military tensions where China's launching these live fire drills and shooting missiles over Taiwan and so forth. And now the U.S. is even is digging it even further into its uh, commitment of a security guarantee of some kind to Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. That's another facet of this that really, I mean, you can't get more consequential than both parties fundamentally agreeing on a lurch toward cataclysmic multi-theater military conflagration. <laughs> but that's, that's the direction they're all moving in in unison. And uh, in a, in a ne- my, the next step's not going to get more into the, the China element because that's probably deserves its own treatment. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do think... Uh, I do think that this is a thesis that should get wider airing, not just because I'm the one articulating it, but because it could sort of reorient how people 
perceive the issue of partisanship and make them understand that oftentimes on the most genuinely existential questions that are before the state, uh, partisanship really is just a fig leaf. And uh, there's basically total uniformity on the measures which could actually uh, lead to life or death, both for you and I personally and also civilizationally. So worth uh, just making that point, I thought. Anyway, I do have a caller here. Let's go to Chris. How's it going? Hey, what's up, Mike? Hey, how are you? Hey, good. Um, yeah, I mean, this isn't really an original idea, but um, I think that when the shift happened, when when pretty much all um, anti-expansionist, anti-imperialist um, sentiment just left the um, the parties, like at least at the um, leadership level, it was um, it was RussiaGate. That's what did it. Um, Trump got elected. And that's when it, and everyone just lost their mind, um, and they went into the Russiagate conspiracy theory because, you know, you're talking about how, yeah, you can't even have a conversation about, like, the actual, like, what's actually happening in Ukraine, why it's happening, just even, even just recent history as much as, you know, eight years ago when, when the current crisis started in 2014. Nobody, nobody's even really capable of having that conversation. They all, all they can think about is World War II and Hitler. And yeah. the reason it's like that is, is because of the conspiracy theory mindset. They just, they, um, everybody kind of came to this conclusion that um, Putin uh, or just Russia in general is a global existential threat, and 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 that they're, you know, that they're this expansionist monster. And I don't know how to solve it, but I mean that's. I think that's, that's what did it. That's, that's why we're at where we're at. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that may not be an original idea, but for huge swaths of the public, they wouldn't have been exposed to that idea ever. In the first, uh, you know, so for them, it probably would be original. So you know, I'm, uh, of course, aware of that concept, and I've made variations of that argument myself, as you might, might be aware, but I'm under no illusions that that idea has gotten wide exposure through, you know, much of the public. And to the extent that it has, in part because of my, you know, trying to promote it, it's almost invariably received with huge denial and anger and almost this, like, snide, this laughing dismissal that that could have any relevance whatsoever. But, you know, if Russiagate has played no role at all in shifting political attitudes in this sort of policy domain, somebody's going to have to give me an alternate explanation as to how it is that there's absolutely no quote-unquote progressive or hardly even any left-wing of any stripe sort of opposition to any of these policy moves. And there's no pressure exerted on, you know, the tribunes of organized, the organized progressive movement, whether it's Bernie Sanders more, more, most kind of straightforwardly or even like a Warren or a Booker or uh, uh, others who like aspire to be the tribunes of the organized progressive sort of activist or media class. They have no pressure exerted on them whatsoever to even explain what their reasoning is. I mean, that's what's amazing to me. Bernie Sanders would in the past, explain his reasoning as to why he would oppose, for example, earlier rounds of NATO expansion. Now, now he has this whole you know, movement around him, supposedly, with all kinds of activists who are plugged into his circle and media 
organs, which pretty much have a direct line to him. And even so, it's not even really you know, impressed upon him that maybe at some point he should consider getting around to at least providing a rationale so it could be evaluated. I mean, it's just silence and, then, and no one cares. And I think a lot of that, a lot of, I think a lot of it does, you're right, stem from this kind of fundamental shift that I don't know how you can dispute Russiagate ushered into just the body politic. Um, such that you know, views of the views of the issue were were dictated by these hyper inflamed partisan passions and never stopped being so. I I think I think that what happened was Russia Gate transferred foreign policy into the culture war. When yeah. I've had to have when I've tried to have these conversations with people, um, like they they really do believe that it's it's just as simple as um, Putin and Trump are on the same side of the culture war. And, they're, and, yeah. and that's the only lens they can feel. So, for example, I've, I've been, when, when I follow this story, there are some people on the left, or like kind of pseudo-left, like you, um, Max Blumenthal. But Am I left or pseudo-left? <laughs> well, what, what, I don't know. I, I don't want to throw around labels. No, I'm kidding, I mean, yeah. But what I mean is left of, left of center. You guys, you, you guys are taking a critical eye on this. But from what I can tell, the vast majority of people who are actually, who actually are critical about this, they're on the right. They're on, they're on the right side of things. Yeah. And the reason that they feel comfortable doing that is because they don't feel that they have to have any allegiance to, to that side of the culture. It, 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 it's really, I think that the, the vast majority of people who are thinking about this they're just, they're just not even thinking about it. It's just a culture war thing. Anyway, yeah, I mean, right. you're right. And actually, I'm going to try to remember the way you formulated it there, which is that, you know, Russiagate to a large degree made foreign policy a culture war issue. Not to say that foreign policy never had bearing on culture war before, right? I mean, even during the Iraq war, it was sort of inescapably intertwined to some degree with the culture war because you have like questions of patriotism versus jingoism versus you know um you know whether you're a liberal sissy in hollywood who's against the war or a, you know, a chest thumping you know gun toting guy driving around in a pickup truck who supports the war i mean there's a, obviously a dimension that has bearing on culture war around uh that that, that was existing around iraq but i think you're right in that it made Russia in particular a culture war issue in a way that it hadn't really been, at least since the end of the Cold War, and inflict the, the ideological contours of what that culture war was. Um, and part of that was deliberate. In this, you know, uh, One of the most amazing speeches that every now and again I, I make sure to go back and reference because I, I want to make sure that I'm not hallucinating and this really happened in uh, August of 2016, I don't know if you recall, but Hillary Clinton did one of what was one of her like most hotly anticipated speeches at that point in, in the presidential cycle. And it was about this, you know, emerging threat of the alt-right. And so for the first time, she even like mentioned Alex Jones by name. She was talking about like alt-right trolls on Twitter and stuff. It was absurd, but she capped it off with this claim that uh, Putin was what she called the grand godfather that's the term she used grand godfather of global extremism so putin was you know uh you know cultivating and fertilizing all these burgeoning movements of alt-right right-wing extremism whatever white nationalism fill in the blank 
around the world, in Europe, in the U.S., namely. Um, hence why he was supposedly so determined to, you know, install Trump into the White House, Manchurian candidate style. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, that, did, that did layer the issue of, of Russiagate and its kind of... Um, and it's kind of offshoots that sort of enveloped the American political system for several years. It did layer it with this ideological overtone that continues today, I think you're right, to color how people view the Ukraine war issue, how to deal with Putin personally, and even more ancillary issues like NATO expansion. Now, if it were... That said, if it were just strictly polarized around culture war, then you would expect a more vigorous Republican opposition to measures like expanding NATO to Sweden and Finland or sending $40 billion in arms to Ukraine and so on. Uh, but it really doesn't polarize that neatly. I mean, there are plenty of Republicans who were critical of aspects of how Trump, for example, was treated over the course of Russiagate, who were nonetheless, you know, down the line supportive of all the latest anti-Russia policy initiatives. Uh, but, you know, there is a kernel of truth there, for sure. And um, I do think that point ought to be more fleshed out, which I'm trying to do in various forms. Um, and because yeah, I think there has to be some explanation just beyond everyone is so enthralled to, you know, this black or white moral calculus around the Ukraine war. There has to be something beyond that, at least for in terms of the U.S. domestic politics, that explains why there was such an outpouring of total conformity on these subjects and still is. But especially among the you know left or the progressive factions who in the not-so-distant past would have at least had some clamoring, I think, for at least a certain measure of restraint as to, you know, should we just unthinkingly endorse this expansion of American military hegemony, or should we just unthinkingly wage a proxy war in Eastern Europe with no limitations and no benchmarks and with, you know, essentially a blank check? And, And should we just totally abandon any concern for stuff like nuclear war, which actually used to be an animating cause of the left. Um, you know, I tweeted about this recently, but you can go find uh, newspaper clippings from uh, 1982, where the uh, largest protests ever in New York City's history at that point uh, was a no-nukes protest. So it was, you know, kind of, it was more or less against, you know, the Reagan administration's posture of nuclear armament. Um, uh, it was against, you know, just the more ardent Cold War hawks of that time period. And, you know, like, like many things, uh, like many ironies throughout history, it's just totally flipped now. And you know, So I, if there's been such arbitrary flipping or flip-flopping such as that, I mean, you have to kind of search for underly- uh, underlying explanations and causes beyond just whatever seems like it might be most true on the surface, such as, you know, people are just so uh, invested in this, you know, like fairy tale storybook version of the morality play between Ukraine and Russia. No, I think it's, there's more to it than that. And I think, you know, Russiagate is definitely a precedent that some of, some people who are people who are listening to this call in might've heard the theory fleshed out about its role on just, you know, shaping the political climate of today. But, I would, I would wager that most Americans have never even had it 
proposed to them that it could have had any kind of adverse effect in that regard. So I'll try doing so. <laughs> and I'll uh, probably incur trolling as a result, but that's okay. I'm used to it at this point. All right, everybody. Thanks for uh, tuning in. Uh, we're going to reconvene tomorrow with uh, Sir Richard. And uh, be well. Bye-bye.